invite you to turn in your Bibles to the fourth gospel, John's gospel, as we are now finished with chapter two, and we're starting chapter three this morning. And, you know, just in trying to make a decision on what the preaching unit would be, it was very, uh, you know, you start out with maybe a preaching unit of 10 verses, and then suddenly you realize maybe you should pare that down to eight, and then you read some more, you study some more, and the Lord takes you further into that exegetical process. And by nearing the end of the week, you're thinking, we'd better just look at the first three verses. When you look at this concept of what it means to be born again, I don't know that we could have a more important topic to be talking about here today than what that means. I've thought about the first chapters that we've been through, including this one, chapter 3, and in looking at it and studying it, I'm thinking that this first chapter, of course, as Jesus, or as even John, the human writer, is on this diligent pursuit to have us believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, in chapter 1, of course, was the declaration of his deity. We saw no less than 15 cases of titles and designations of deity given to Jesus throughout that just in one 51 verse chapter. So we saw the declaration of his deity there clearly, repeatedly, unequivocally, unmistakably. We entered chapter 2 and we see the demonstration of that deity where he is turning water into wine and not just a glass or two. He's filling massive jars of purified water into wine, some 25 to 30 gallons worth. And then he goes and he clears the temple, and we talked about that power on display. And I like the way John writes. I mean, it's, um, it's, it makes perfect sense that he would start with the declaration of who he is, but then at the end of chapter 1, you're thinking, well, let's see some of that. And boy, do we see it, didn't we? If you didn't see it in the calm setting, serene setting of that wedding, the happy occasion there where it's kind of just a quiet but yet no less powerful of a miracle where he breaks in upon nature and the natural order of things to just say, no, this water is going to now be wine. But what a contrast between that and clearing the temple. No less but more demonstrable was that. I mean, this was drama. This was amazing. He does this twice. We find the other occasion later on, near the end, at the very end of his ministry, as he's getting ready to be crucified as the Paschal or Passover lamb. And we see him here now in this first case with quite a dramatic display of power as he's clearing the entire temple area the courtyard area of some at least several hundreds, if not thousands of people. There's some one and a half to two million people there for Passover. Just an amazing demonstration. And thinking about chapter 3 and the importance of what takes place in chapter 3, you're stuck thinking, what now? I mean, already, at, I mean, listen, he had me at verse 1 of chapter 1, didn't he, for you? This is God in flesh. 
This is the Son of God who's come to save, to seek and to save that which was lost, lost in the garden, would be forever had he not come. What did he come with? Well, third, I think a, a, an appropriate way to put it would be the dynamics of his deity, the dynamics. If you're, we use that word for a lot of different things. I'm going to give you the straight definition of it so we understand what we're talking about. It, dynamics means a force that stimulates change or progress within a system or process. Is that not what we see here? Here's who I am. Here's a display of my power. Now, this man needs to understand what the dynamics of this ministry are. What exactly has to happen to a human being? Just what is the quandary there? What is the problem? And how will I take care of it? And that's what we see. So looking at chapter 3, we're going to read verse 1 through 3 for today. Let's read together. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Father, clearly we need help here. We need help not only understanding who this man is, understanding why he's come, when he's come, to whom he's come, and what your son says. This, this, the dynamics of why he came, this is it. We understand that this is the hope of salvation. If we get this wrong, we're in a world of trouble. Not in just mistreating your word and what your son clearly came to do, but in losing souls in the practice. Help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So verse 1, we're going to dive right in. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So Nicodemus is a common Greek name that means victor over the people. Very common name that was used back then. There's nothing special about that. But this Nicodemus is also a Pharisee. He's not only a Pharisee, he's a member of the Sanhedrin, as we find out in other places. He appears only two other times in this gospel, in chapter 7 and chapter 19. It's an interesting character when you put those three occasions that Nicodemus surfaces you are given enough just in those three occasions to get some idea of the kind of man this was, which helps you understand why he's there. Why at night? Why alone? Why does he say what he says? All of these things start coming together. So this was, the Pharisee is a separatist. As some of you know, that's actually what the word Pharisee means. It's a separatist. They're separate from uh, other people that are not God's people, that are not called to be Pharisees. The, he is a meticulous, if not fastidious, keeper of the law because he's also a scribe. The scribe was 
those who spent their time studying the law of Moses and creating other laws that would expand on the Mosaic law. He knows not just the law of Moses as a Pharisee and a member of Sanhedrin, but as a scribe, he understands the fine points of the law. Who, do you, who would you think would be most intrigued by Jesus saying what he just said? What has he left, invested his life in? His understanding of what it takes to be in the presence and company of a holy God when one perishes. Think about this man. So, he's a prominent man for sure because the designation that he receives here in the verse, he's referred to as a ruler of the Jews. So, victor over people. This is a Pharisee. This is a scribe. This is a ruler of the Jews that we're talking about. The other place that I mentioned, he shows up in John seven forty-five to 52, and I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but I will read it. So he's with the Sanhedrin here. So we get some insight into this man. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him, meaning Jesus? Where is he? That's what we sent you out to do. Verse 46, the officer says, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or Pharisees believed him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus is listening to this. And watch what he says. Yeah, they're accursed. Yeah, we know the law. You should have drug him in here. Is that what he says? He speaks up. I think, he, I think he's a guy who listens more than he speaks, but then speaks when he is at once compelled, when he's convicted. And here's what he says in verse 51. Does our law judge a man without first... This, remember the lawyer. He knows the law. Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, <laughs> Are you from Galilee too? They didn't think much of the Galilean, right? We covered that earlier. Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. They said in their ignorance because they think that's where he's from. Remember, he's not from Nazareth. Where is he from? Bethlehem, which is in Judea. So in their arrogance, thinking themselves to be wise, they became what? And so he's just remembering the law. You mean, you mean we're going to... We're going to try a man and, and punish him without hearing from him first? I, uh, maybe I think that you're afraid to hear from him. I, I'm, I don't know. But he does have some compelling things to say. He had been with him already at night. Then you see him again. You don't hear his name again until John 19. This is the final time Jesus has been crucified. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, there you go, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away the body. Nicodemus, verse 39, also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds of weight, so they took the body of Jesus and bound 
it in linen cloths and spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Isn't this what we do? We've always done this. Wouldn't we do this for this man? He's got this strange mixture, I believe, of a lifetime knowing precisely the law. And yet Jesus is beyond fascinating. The things he's saying are compelling. And that's why he had to go to him at night. So verse 2 of our text, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs unless that you do unless God is with him. So he, Nicodemus is evidently quite curious. He's, that's probably an understatement. He's, if you've ever known somebody that is a sort of a nerd about a, a particular study, um, these things will bother them, yeah? <clears throat> it will bother them. They have to talk to him to find out this isn't squaring with the law, but yet in a strange way it is. The things you're saying make sense, but that just makes me uncomfortable because I practice every point, every jot and tittle of the law. I can quote it to you. What is this? So whether out of pride, there's only a few reasons this could be that's motivating him. Either pride, who do you think you are? I want you to, I don't think, I don't personally think so. Fear of man, maybe he goes at night. I don't know. Or maybe it could just be a ordinary banal reason. Maybe he's just going because Jesus isn't surrounded by a big crowd. We don't know. The text doesn't say. But we do know something about Nicodemus in this first few minutes, don't we? By looking, and how? By looking at the scriptures. So he came to Jesus at night. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Why is he... Why is he putting Jesus in the same category? He hasn't developed a proper separation from him, making it clear that we're the Sanhedrin. You know, we went through Acts, right? And they, they made sure everybody understood who they were. They do that when they show up at John the Baptist's baptisms, right? This is who we are. We're here to be baptized. And go away. Come back when you have fruits that are in keeping with repentance. So is it condescending, this statement? Or is he really trying to ingratiate himself with Jesus? It's not like... This isn't like somebody, after all, who humbly comes asking for help or who has a desperate need. There's those that came to Jesus because they were desperate. I'm one of those people. Are you? Desperate. I, I have to have you. I have to. Or I perish. Forever. I can't bear the thought of that. Is that why he can't? I don't think so. He knows the law. He's been practicing it his whole life. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. He's been looking. <laughs> he's been looking at the signs. So that's as far as he's gotten. They all stop at that point, don't they? Uh, we need more signs. Remember? We talked about that. Does Jesus agree with that? Okay, I'll, I'll put on a... F no. 
An evil and what? Adulterous generation, generation seeks a sign and none, no sign is going to be... Here, I'll give you one. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a whale. There, there you go. There's your, there's your sign. Verse 3. Jesus answered him. And this is where we spend the rest of our time, folks, so hold on to your hat. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This took the lion's share of my time. This fantastic, enigmatic statement, clearly dynamic statement. It's a force that comes in to make a change or to continue progress. That's what dynamic is. This idea of being born again. Nicodemus, did you think about this? Nicodemus didn't ask him a question. That's interesting, isn't it? Nicodemus could have said, Who's asking? He doesn't. Why? Because Jesus knows his heart. Nicodemus, we're going to talk about what you're actually here for. I'm just going to lay it out there. I don't have to say, I know what you're thinking, or which we ignorantly say, and we're the only ones who don't know what somebody else is thinking. <laughs> Jesus doesn't have to say it. Listen to me, listen to me. Unless one is born again, he cannot, he will not see the kingdom of God. That's what you're here for. This is it. This is the dynamic center of what the God-man has come for. He's, there's been enough signs to clarify unequivocally who he is. This word born again the root means to procreate, beget, bring forth, give birth, conceive. That's what it literally means in its root. But it's purposely ambiguous. The word again can equally be from above. Why the translators, and in the other places where John uses that same word, that's how it's translated. You can look that up yourself. I don't want to take the time here this morning. He, it's translated from above. Unless this takes place from above, you have no shot. You have no hope. There is no prayer. There's nothing you can do. Now remember who Nicodemus is. I've done everything. He's like the, does he remind you of the rich young ruler? What else do I need to do? And he exposed his heart too, didn't he? So in other words, we're born from above. You have to be born from above. In other words, the Holy Spirit must implant new spiritual life in the person. Or it's not going to happen. What he finds when he 
enters in is a heart that's quite dead. As was said in the song that was wonderfully sung this morning, we have hearts of stone. It needs to be traded out, doesn't it? Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27. I will take out what? Heart of stone and give you heart of flesh. That's what has to happen. Who's doing that? God. God is. It makes sense. If you think about it, if you go back to the garden and reflect for a moment, when did Adam and Eve die spiritually? As soon as they disobeyed God, they were dead. God in His grace and mercy lets them stay alive physically because He has a plan. And you know the rest of it. So what are we subject to? What, what's our condition out of that curse? Walking enemies of God in fallen flesh that has the propensity to yield to the God of this world. That's the condition we're in. Wow. So they, Adam and Eve, left their offspring in that condition. Every single human being from that moment on suffers that condition. So we start counting days, and we start looking at how many years Adam and Eve lived and how many years we live, and we start counting. And the Lord has numbered those days according to the psalmist, hasn't he? He knows exactly how much time we have because he's the same God of grace and mercy that lets anybody live long enough, draw breath, or have a heartbeat so that they can see this, that they must be born from above. Now, you can preach this message till the cows come home. If he doesn't do a work, it falls to dust before it reaches their ears. This is our conundrum, isn't it? So Jesus discloses what essentially is a dynamic principle. I think I left this in the, the outline for you. Jesus discloses this dynamic principle because Nicodemus needs to know that nothing on this earth, no system of religious ceremonialism or moralistic practice will ever qualify anyone for entrance into heaven. That's it. Nothing. We're walking dead people, spiritually, who give birth to the spiritually stillborn. How dead is dead? Have you tried to bring life to a rock? Give it a shot. The philosopher defined nothing as what sleeping rocks dream of. I'll let that spin around in your head for a while. <clears throat> Henriksen said, in its initial stage, the process of changing a person into a child of God precedes conversion and faith. A change has to happen. That's the dynamic. A force has to come. Something, someone has to come and breathe life into that dead heart. Otherwise, it's dead. There's nothing we can do about that. I've got three points for us this morning. I mean, this is something we could spend. I would love to have two 
two to three hours to preach, and I don't have that. So the Lord puts me in this context. Part of the stewardship of the whole process of being called to preach is you've got an hour. You're going to lose them after that. I've tried to fight that principle, but I lose. So the first point is this. Defiled and condemned. That's our condition, isn't it? I want you to understand that this is a twofold conundrum. This is a twofold problem that we are both defiled and condemned. Condemned is a forensic issue, it's an issue of the courts. You are guilty. But we're also soiled, aren't we? We're defiled, we're polluted, we're corrupt. That's. That's. Two things that we need to look at here. We have to quant- we have to do things sequentially because of this context that we're in. We're in a sequential timeline continuum. We have to have these things broken down is probably the best way to put it, right? But there's two things to remember there that we are not only defiled, but we're condemned. Not only does that that defilement rule in us, we call it the flesh, but it also the penalty hangs over us like the sword of Damocles hanging by a thread. I won't do harm to Jonathan Edwards. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. I'll leave it alone. But that's the idea. How much time do we have? He invented the clock, God. He has the time ticking away to remind us, you are mortal, O man. How much time do you think you have? Be careful. So, I thought... There's so much in Scripture that would make this point, but the one who makes it the most, I think, succinctly is Job. This twofold problem that we have here in our fallen condition. So you can see it, for instance, in Job 4.17, where it says, Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his Maker? Did you hear them both? Both? Or Job 15, 14. What is man that he can be pure? Or he who is born of a woman that he can be righteous? If he's born of a woman, she's fallen. He's not right and he's not pure. Is he? Job 25, 4. How then can man be in the right before God? How can he who is born of a woman be pure? That's impossible. So I want to show you something. We'll step aside from Job for a minute. We'll look at Haggai, the prophet Haggai. And just so that we know all sacrifices, these human efforts to be righteous that Nicodemus is very familiar with, of all the people could not make them clean in God's eyes. None of it will. So in Haggai... Uh, chapter 2 and 11 to 14. Now, you got to pay attention here, okay? But it, this is fascinating if you can wrap your mind around it. If you don't, listen to it sometime online. Verse 11, Haggai 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, 
asks the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any other kind of food, does it become holy? This was holy bread. That was set apart, our holy uh, meat that's in the garment, the holy garment of the priest. They wore holy vestments, right? Will it make, if he bumps into a sandwich on the counter, does it become holy? <laughs> the priest answered, uh, I would say rightly, no. It didn't work that way. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with dead bodies touches any of these, does it become unclean? A priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people. So it is with all of us. And with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands, you can't do it. No matter what you try to do, no matter how well-meaning, it's not going to get done. The unclean cannot make something clean. It's that simple. So with every work of the hands, and what they offer there in the temple is unclean. So ceremonial, uh, ceremonial cleanness cannot be transferred, but uncleanness can, and all sinners are unclean. So we can't, we can't just help each other through talking and teaching, through how much, whatever amount of submission you want them to be submitted to, how effective you are, how well studied you are, it's not going to happen unless they are born from above. Job 14.4, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? See, he gets it. That's impossible. There is not one. John Hartley wrote, no person may achieve moral virtue because of the limitations of human nature. End quote. You can't. You can't do that. This is what he's saying to Nicodemus in a simple statement. You have to be born from above. And as we'll see when we move forward, it sort of becomes enigmatic to Nicodemus, doesn't it? How, how do you do that? How, how does a man get reborn Entering his mother's womb again? How does that happen? How do you do that? He's thinking physically. Why? Because he's a physical God, a guy. He's a guy who gets things done at the temple through the law of Moses. Everything that he thinks is subject to creation. That's the problem. We need something or somebody, something clean or somebody clean that also has the efficacious power to enter down into this swamp and come into this dark, pathetic heart, this wretch that I am that are, that's dead and blind and make it alive. That's what has to happen. Another person said, none but God can make man clean who is naturally unclean, end quote. The second point this morning, so here's what we need to 
understand, if we're going to unpack this very important, critical doctrine, this dynamic principle that Jesus has just laid on all of us, just laid on Nicodemus, and that is chosen by God in what is known as the effectual calling. Because how many people are called by God to repent? All of them. The destiny of God's chosen people was established and sealed before time. Do we understand that? Let's start there. Where? Before time. Before God decided to invent time and create the world and put us in that context, before that, this was sealed. 2 Timothy 1, 8 and 9. Second part of verse 8. The gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Which he gave us in Christ Jesus. Here he is on the hillside laying this out to Nicodemus. Or Ephesians 1, 4-5, He chose us in Him before what? The foundation of the world. And we, that we, here's the purpose, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Why? Because that which is unclean cannot be with that which is clean. It's the whole point symbolically with all of the sacrificial and ceremonial uh, practices that they get engaged in. Romans 9 and verse 11, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing wrong, Jacob and Esau, right? They hadn't done anything. They weren't even born yet. Before that, they hadn't done anything good or bad. So it's not a measurement of the quality of their merits or their virtues or their good works. No, they haven't even been born yet. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of His call. This efficacious call whereby he is glorified. There's a 20th century uh, Dutch Reformed theologian. He wrote a wonderful commentary on Luke's gospel. Um, lived in the 20th century. He lived in uh, South Africa. His name is uh, J. Norville uh, Geldenheis. Okay, sound Dutch? Listen to what he says here. <laughs> The New Testament clearly and consistently teaches us that through the sovereign and omnipotent power and grace of God, we are effectually called to become the inheritors of the salvation wrought by God through Jesus Christ, end quote. Would you agree with that statement? 1 Corinthians 1, 23-24. Now we can start unpacking some things with these foundational understandings from Scripture. 1 Corinthians 1 is very important here. Verse 23 and 24 says, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and folly to the Gentiles. 
But to those who are called, which call would this be? Yeah. Both Jews and Greeks. So if you're talking about one people group, but yet a subpart of that people group, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So it has to be by the power of God, doesn't it? That's what has to happen. It's a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Still Sovereign by uh, Bruce Ware and Tom Rainer. Excellent, excellent book. There's a lot of really good ones. My most common, I think, is Chosen by God. He... Sproul gets mainly into predestination there. They, they come from different places, so they all have their value. Verse 26 of 1 Corinthians. So that this unpacks it for us. For consider your calling. Brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not m- many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose What is foolish in the world to shame the wise, God chose. What is weak in the world to shame the strong, God chose. Why do we have such trouble with this? He repeats it over and over, anticipating we're going to have a problem. Why? Because we're rascals. I want some part here. Let's call it prevenient grace. Where'd they find that? I'm still looking. Let me know if you find it. God looking down the corridors of time and seeing how Mark chose. That's nonsense. It's unbiblical. This is all from God because God will not share his glory with any man. Aren't you glad that he doesn't? I don't want him sharing his glory with me. I'm a wretch. He chose, verse 28, what is low and despised in the world. I'm really grateful for that even the things that are not to bring the things that are so that no human being might what boast in the presence of God. We think we're so well, well hidden at times, don't we? When we're alone with our thoughts or our activities and God's right there with us. It's like, don't, don't think this is because of you. He is the source. This should clarify at verse 30. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom, our righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, here we go again, let the one who wants to boast, boast in whom? Boast in the Lord. Praise the Lord. Aren't you glad? It's only pride that wants me to lay some kind of claim. We need to give that up and give glory to God. Very plainly stated in 1 Thessalonians 1.4, For we know, brothers, loved of God, that He has chosen you. How do they know? Well, I think there's a reason He says loved of God, don't you? So they can see the love of God in men and women in whose heart He worked. Because He had to first love them. But when he does, he brings that grace that you cannot resist. And you're drawn. 
They, he sees the love. And when a, a Christian sees that in another believer, they see them just, see them just drawn to Christ and following him. That's all they want to talk about. We never tire talking about him and what he's done. That's love. There's the grace. It's irresistible. I can't get enough of him. He's my opening thoughts. He woke me up at 4.20 this morning. Yeah. And my thoughts were on him. And anytime he wakes me up early in the morning, and my beloved wife is cool with this, my thoughts go to him. Every time you lay there in that sweet moment of musing and communing with your beloved. How sweet is that? Let him have that power. Give him the glory for taking that stone out of my chest, as it were, and replacing it with one that could beat for him. Late have I loved thee. Late have I loved thee, O beauty, so ancient and so new, said Augustine. You've breathed your breath in me and I came to life and now my heart pants for you. That's a born-again believer, yeah? Somebody who's met him and knows him. He made alive. And it's like that person that they wake up out of a coma in the hospital. The first one you see is him. And you, you love him with a love that's hard to describe. But you would couldn't think of following anyone else. And because my wife is his too, she understands that. Oh, there isn't a human being on this planet that I love more than her. But that's got to take a second place. We talk about this a lot. And, and, and I take fully a second place. If she can't have her devotional time, I've told you this before, she, she's wept tears already. Because things interfered with that. She wants to be with her Savior. That's the idea. We know, brothers, beloved of God, that he has chosen you because of the love that you've received and now you share. Because before that, who do we love? Thank you. Exactly. But I love this. Psalm 110, verse 3. Listen. This is a messianic, this is a powerful messianic psalm. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. I'm here, Lord. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And as Paul said on the road to Damascus, what would you have me do? You tell me, I'm following you now. You're stuck with me. You decided to resurrect me from the dead. You can't get rid of me now. But you gave me, you gave me a garment I've never had. I didn't know existed. It's pure. It's holy. It's good. It's the vestment of a priest. And I don't know of what a wretch I am. Why would you do this? Why indeed? That's what he wants us all to muse over so that we might give him glory and worship him for how long? Forever and ever and ever. That's what he's trying to get across to Nicodemus. This um, Geldenheis 
wrote another statement that I liked or thought. It is clear that by calling in these cases is meant, listen carefully, is meant not merely an invitation. When I was called to serve a large church, it was a Baptist church that will go nameless. One of the first things I did when we had a pastoral meeting is the head pastor had asked any questions. I, I said, I have one. It says in the bulletin that this is the place of the invitation. What's that? What's that? Is he inviting me? This is God we're talking about. He's commanding me. He's God. I'm called to repent. I think I'd rather listen to, I'd rather read the bulletin of Jonathan Edwards, wouldn't you, than some of the contemporary bulletins we see that are stuck with the traditions of men, gobbledygook that they pulled from where? I want to follow the voice, the voice that came alive in my life, the voice that brought me life, don't you? And if that challenges and negates any of the traditions of mine or anyone else, so be it, yeah? It's clear that by calling, he says, in these cases is meant not merely an invitation, but that mysterious, glorious, and efficacious act of God through the Holy Spirit, which brings man into true, and in my word, dynamic fellowship with Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is rightly called a heavenly calling. You're born from above. God is the all-sufficient cause, he writes, the origin and executor of the calling. How God accomplishes this is beyond human comprehension. And why he acts thus only in the case of some to whom the vocatio verbalis, the, the, the calling, the verbal calling, vocatio verbalis, why only some who hear, in other words, come, is not within the limit of sphere of human understanding, end quote. We need the vocatio interna, not the vocatio externa. The vocatio externa is out there, isn't it? It's nature. We can see evidence of God so that we are among people, what? Without excuse. We need the vocatio. They understood this. That's why they came up with those cool Latin terms. We need the vocatio interna. We can't do that. Would you ever volunteer to give yourself open heart surgery? How crazy is that? This is even crazier. I can't do that. How many of you have spent maybe years making it clear to someone you love you must be born again? You must repent. You must recognize your condition, the twofold condition. You're not only condemned in terms of your standing with God, in terms of God as judge, it's a forensic issue, but you're defiled, you're corrupt. There's no way you have not the capacity nor the ability to change your heart. And that's what must happen. That's what he's telling Nicodemus. Or about to. 
God is the all-sufficient cause, origin, executor of the calling. And how God does that, we don't know. He's God. He also said in the Gospels, call is often used merely in the sense of invite. But in the epistles, the word is mostly used in the sense of summoning, commanding, and at the same time, effecting, causing to be, and prevailing. Aren't you glad? Yes. To call in the epistles means in substance to appoint one to salvation, and that, my friends, belongs to God and Him alone. Three. Third point. Final point. But not the end of the sermon. So get comfortable. So, what we're talking about doctrinally, we have to start with the efficacious calling because that preceded. There must be this, this calling, this efficacious calling. There must be some work done by God in the heart in terms of those that he has called and appointed for salvation. And now this very act, this born-again idea, he, this is essentially the dead are made alive. We refer to it as regeneration. The heart was dead. Unless a radical transformation happens, there is no heaven for us. There is no fellowship with a holy God. He's not only holy, which is pure, but he's righteous, which is right. There's going to be no unrighteous among him. They have to be made right, and they have to be made pure. Ephesians 2, 4 to 6, but, but God, being rich in mercy, thanked the Lord because of the great love with which he loved us when even, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you are saved. This idea of a grace that cannot be resisted, will not be resisted because this is an act of God. God is doing this, and he's only the, the only being that has the power to do so. Titus 3, 3 to 5, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. He saved us. Not because of works done by us. If any of this, if any of this work was my responsibility, then God owes me. I don't think you want that. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. By the way, that righteousness apart from Christ's doing is considered what? Filthy rags, according to Isaiah. But according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. This washing. This washing. (laughs) Regeneration is a creative miracle that God performs by bringing the spiritually dead to life. Yes? Man is both helpless and hopeless. 
That's the condition he finds us in, and he knows that. So our situation is impossible. It's utterly and completely impossible. Matthew 4. Uh, before Matthew 4, though, into this sin, darkened cesspool, this spiritually dead and blind, the light of life has come. Wasn't it wonderful to get to that part in chapter 1? A great light. We've been anticipating it. Isaiah talked about it. 700 years before the Messiah came. A great light. There was a darkness across the land and a great light has come because in that light is life. And that's what we need. The sin darkened, spiritually dead and blind. Now have the light because he has come. Matthew 4 and verse 16. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Dwelling in a place of death where that's all you can see because you're blind. The only hope you see is to end whatever pathetic, physical, fallen life you have. And into that death trap comes a light. A cry was made out. October 5th, 1989 in New York City. And a shaft of life comes in. He hears that cry for mercy. God help me. That's all I could say. Friends, I can't tell you how grateful I am for that day. I don't understand how somebody could even be attracted or try to justify Arminius' position. It's untenable. It's unbiblical. I don't understand. So God must retrieve what was lost to him. Let's, let's review. The creature designed especially to bring him glory because they belong to him. The whole redemptive enterprise is the means of God's project of reclamation. You belong to me. That's what he's saying. And I As my son was brought back to life, as he brought Lazarus back to life, I will bring you back to life. I will love you with a never-ending, unsullied, unselfish. I have no agenda. See, when you come to the conclusion that there is no such thing, And the moment occurs to you, it's like a chill down your spine. This whole supposition that there's something called love in this pathetic world was a lie. People love themselves. It tends to create a little suicide ideation, doesn't it? But there was hope. There was hope in one who can break in on that blindness. This sin-darkened 
dead and blind state, the enemies of his. So in, cor- in order to accomplish that, he has to enter into the world that he created, now sullied and sin-darkened. It's pitch black, spiritually, and it's filthy. It's polluted. But when a light, shaft of light, hits the city dump, does it sully the light? No. This is what he's done. He's come into the sewer of our lives and shown a great light, made our hearts alive, regenerated us, washed us, picked us up. Matthew 1, 21. She shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Hallelujah. Furthermore, God has to enter into the heart, doesn't he? The sin-fallen heart, that, that heart that when he's, when he's if, if you'll allow, so to speak, stands there in the center of your heart, what does he see? <laughs> oh, Lord, don't look at that. I'm ashamed. I'm here to wash those things away. You've been forgiven. Justification is different than cleansing, but necessarily connected, isn't it? The dead come alive. The blind regain their sight. In Christ, they are forgiven and cleansed from all sin. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor adulterers, nor uh, idolaters, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. It's that plain. And such what? Such what? Were some of you. But you've been washed, cleansed. You've been sanctified, set apart. You were justified, forgiven. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the spy, the spirit of our God. Not by me. I was a guy who muddled around in probably many parts of that list he just named of the deeds of the flesh. If we confess our sins, what? Help me out. He is faithful. You could stop there for a minute, could you? He is, thank God I'm not. He is faithful to do what? Do you see two things in that verse? He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. That's the issue of justification and cleanse us. Praise God. I need more than forgiveness. I need the filth of the life I lived washed away, cleansed. I want it gone, don't you? I don't want any part of it anymore. This heart, this life, this soul, this spirit belongs to Him. My voice, my body, my life, everything is all His. He has done this over and over again. In our message this morning, God has done this. 
God has done this. God has chosen. God has made alive. God has forgiven. God has cleansed. Over and over again. The enemy of God is now his friend. How about that? The spiritual stillborn is now an adopted child of God. He, he doesn't just do that, forgive us and cleanse us. He says, he says, you're coming home with me. What? I appreciate what you did, but I don't belong up there. I just, I don't. Where's your head at? What sin? I've chosen not to remember it anymore. Didn't I tell you? Stop thinking about it. But I still sin. And I'm still at work, aren't I? Praise the Lord. This orphan now becomes a brother. And you a brother or a sister of the Lord Jesus Christ. Tell my brothers, Mary, tell my brothers, it's done. It's done to tell us die. And I'm alive. Tell my brothers. Your brothers. What did Peter think when he heard that? After what he had done. His brother. I, I would say it's probably time for him to weep again, yeah? It's one thing to weep when you failed. It's a whole other weeping when you weep because he's restored you by an act of grace, something you don't deserve. Because you repeat, you don't just sin once, do you? You sin again. Grace that is greater than what? And all means all. Praise the Lord. John 1, 12 to 13. So regarding those who are regenerate, become children of God who were born not of blood, not of the Abrahamic line, nor of the will of the flesh. You've got nothing in that fallen flesh that could have conjured up anything worthy of your salvation, nor of the will of man. You didn't just decide that. I'm going to run down front now because I feel so lousy about myself over what I did. Once again, I'm going to wait till that call and that invitation, and I'm going to run down front. It's not your will. If you belong to me, I will come for you. And you'll find me irresistible. How about that? What kind of love is that? We require certain things of people, don't we? Well, let's just give ourselves a break. We, we have some expectations of people that we're going to love. How long do you love somebody if they just will not love you back? Not going to ask for a show of hands. Mine would be up first. Romans 9, 16. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God. But on God who has mercy. Mercy is looking down and seeing us in our pathetic, wretched state. And grace is doing something about it. Forever he's our mediator, isn't he? Thank God. First Corinthians 1 9. We're coming in for a landing, folks. God is faithful by whom you were called into the, if you'll allow me to insert my word, into the dynamic fellowship 
of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, and it is dynamic. He called us, and it's an efficacious call. It's effective that you will respond to because it's irresistible. You cannot resist it. But nor can you conjure up your own salvation. You can't do it. The most you can come up with is some legitimate remorse and regret for your sin. Yeah? Tears. But Paul was happy because the man in Corinth, in 2 Corinthians 7, right? 9 to 11, there's, there's two kinds of sorrow. There's a sorrow that leads to life and to repentance, to repentance and life, but there's a sorrow that leads to death. You contrast Peter with Judas. They both were in deep, abject, tragic sorrow. Peter was restored. And what happened to Judas? Let me... Do you have a minute? Can I read one more thing by Geldenhaus? Okay. Listen to this, putting it all together and we're finished. Sin broke the bond of fellowship between the sinner and God. But through the divine act of God, we are called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. The effectual calling is thus that divine act by which the spiritual blindness of the unredeemed is removed so that Jesus Christ is seen, right? We talk about that a lot. They have to see him. I had to see him. And embraced as the true Savior and Son of God, the intellect of man is freed from the bondage of sin and spiritual ignorance, which formed an impenetrable barrier between him and Jesus Christ. And with renewed heart and the will called Christian is united with the Savior in intimate, dynamic, fellowship. End quote. I inserted my word again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His grace, mercy, 1 Peter 1.3, He has caused us to be born again. He has caused us. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Chapter 2, verse 9, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. See, that's what this is actually about, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous life, light. And though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe. What's the next word? Careful. You believe in him. Remember the difference? There's believers. There's believers that believed facts about Jesus. Jews that believed facts about him. They didn't believe in him. Even his disciples had to get to the place where they're it's undeniable. God did a work in their hearts and they believed in him. So do you, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that's inexpressible. It's hard to define. It's, you can't escape from it. It's irresistible. Filled with glory. What does that do? Obtaining the outcome of your faith. The salvation of your souls. If these words here this morning 
from this pulpit, from this word, you find compelling. You find impacting. You can't shake yourself from. It's just the truth. I bid you to join us in prayer, even now. Now he waits. How will you respond? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this love. It's a love that apart from you we are totally unfamiliar with. It's not a love that fallen people love each other. That's, that's only self-love, a fallen love, a selfish love. So, Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for all of these wonderful truths that we mind out. And it's only been an hour's time. And yet, there's so much to say. So may it satisfy you to hear from our hearts. Lord, we want you. We understand our need for you. Please come. Please transform us. Lord, we're humbled because we know we're sinners. We know what we deserve. And in an honest moment, we also recognize there's nothing we can do to extricate ourselves from this terrible mess we've put ourselves in, which leaves us both defiled and condemned. But God, who's rich in mercy, because of your great love with which you loved us, made us alive in Jesus Christ. For it is by grace that we are saved. Thank you. So hear from those hearts, those who would be praying right now to you. Save souls, O Lord, for your glory's sake. Hear our confession. Come, Lord Jesus, for it's in your name and for your glory's sake. Amen.